Please turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. John, chapter 20, and I'll read verses 19 through 23. Verse 19, when therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus therefore said to them, Again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain their sins, the sins of any, they have been retained. The most remarkable things had taken place earlier on this day, things that the disciples could never have imagined early in the morning. When it was dark, some of the women had gone to the tomb of Jesus where he had been laid, and they came with perfume to anoint his body, but when they arrived at the tomb, the stone had been removed away, and the tomb itself was empty, and the body of Jesus was nowhere to be found. Mary Magdalene stood outside the tomb, and she was weeping. Jesus revealed himself to her as risen from the dead. And then he appeared to other women as they were returning from the tomb. And later that day, Jesus appeared to Peter and then to the two men on the road to Emmaus. And then the news spread among the disciples that Jesus was no longer in the tomb. He had been seen and he was risen from the dead. So the disciples gathered themselves together here for the first time since his death, his crucifixion, and John tells us they secluded themselves in this room with the doors shut because they did not want to be found. And they did so out of fear of the Jews, the same men who had put Jesus to death, perhaps would come now looking for them as well. And it is while they were gathered together on this occasion that Jesus came and met with them and spoke to them. So we want to look at some of the things that are shown to us here in these verses, especially verses 19 down through verse 21 this morning, and see some of the significance of these things. One of the great concerns of Jesus throughout his life and ministry was the establishment and the building of his kingdom in the earth. The very first words that he preached in the Gospel of Matthew was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. And as we go through the Gospels, we find that throughout the ministry of Jesus, the great concern was the establishment of his kingdom on earth. Before his death, he was brought before Pontius Pilate and he told 
Pilate that he was a king with a spiritual kingdom. He said, you say correctly that I am a king. For this reason I have been born and for this reason I have come into the world to testify to the truth and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And throughout his ministry, the great concern of Jesus was the establishment of his kingdom. Now that he is raised from the dead, it is still the same. His great concern in this passage has to do with his coming establishment of his kingdom. Several things we note here. The first, very briefly, and it is that Christians are to gather together for worship Christians are to gather together for worship. This is what we see here in the beginning of verse 19. When therefore it was evening, on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, the disciples were there. They were gathered together, the first disciples of Christ. They had heard of the reports of his appearance. Now these first disciples, they are gathered together here to speak to one another What they have heard, no doubt to pray and to worship as well. Jesus was not with them on this occasion as he had been so often throughout the previous three and a half years. But they had been scattered. They had been scattered back to their homes at the cross when he was crucified. But they could not stay at their homes any longer. Here they are gathered together once again. They do not gather in the physical presence of Christ as before, but they are gathered here with one another. And so what we learn here is that Christianity is not a religion that men and women practice isolated and separated from one another. It is one in which we must join ourselves together for the spiritual purposes of edification and comfort and encouragement in the truth. And it has always been the desire of Christians to gather themselves together with one another. Jesus promised in Matthew chapter 18, where two or three are gathered together in my name. And so that's what the church is, a gathering together of the disciples of Christ. And here we see it in seed form in the very beginning, the beginning of the Christian church on earth. It was a time of bewilderment and confusion for these disciples. It was a time of even persecution because of what had happened to their master. Yet despite all of those things, they still gathered themselves together. The second thing we see in this passage is that Jesus has changed the day of worship by his resurrection. He has changed the day of worship. Back in the creation, when God first made the world, he made all things in this world, and he made time as well. And he is the sovereign over all things, and he is the sovereign over time in this world as well. He has the right to order time in his creation, and he ordered it there in the beginning that there would be a pattern of recurring seven days, and the seventh day would be a day of rest for man from his earthly labors and a day of spiritual worship. The seventh day was the Sabbath day from the creation. We read after the first six days of creation, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it 
because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. One day in seven, a day of worship, a creation ordinance, the way God has structured and ordered his world from the very beginning before there was any entrance of sin into the world. And the same thing is repeated in Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 20. God said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. And why? Why should it be so? It is by his own example from creation. He said, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So ever since the creation, the seventh day was always the day of worship and the day of rest for the people of God. But now at the resurrection of Christ, a great change has come. And Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the ruler of the Sabbath, as he says in the Gospels. And what he has done now is that he has moved the day of worship from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. And he begins to make that change here in this passage. Sunday has always been universally recognized by Christians from the very beginning as the day of Christian worship. From the church fathers, the early church fathers in the second century after the death of the apostles, and then all the way down through church history. This is the way it has always been, that Sunday, the first day of the week, has always been regarded as the day of Christian worship. But we do not accept things just by the traditions of men, and because men have done things in the past as Valuable as that might be to help us at times, we must see these things as they are found in the Scripture. So we have some evidence of this right here in this passage. And the first reason is the much greater work of resurrection in the resurrection of Christ. From the creation, the seventh day was the day of worship because the creation had been the greatest of all God's works in this world. And on the seventh day, men were to remember and celebrate God's work of creation. But what has happened now in the resurrection of Christ is that God has accomplished a far greater work in the resurrection of his beloved son, the completion of the work of salvation. The son of God has come down from heaven and he has become a man on earth. And he has lived a perfect life of righteousness so that righteousness can be given to sinful men. And he has suffered in his death upon the cross. And he has been raised from the dead in the resurrection. The resurrection is on the first day of the week. And now the day of worship has been moved from the seventh to the first by that great work of God. We could ask the question, which day of the week was he raised from the dead? Which day of the week did God raise Christ from the dead to show the evidence that he has accepted all the work of his beloved son? The answer is the first day of the week. We see this back in 
chapter 20 here in verse 1. We read in the beginning of the verse, it was on the first day of the week that they came to the tomb, the day of resurrection. And then we read again down in the beginning of verse 19, when therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week. He could have chosen any day of the week for the resurrection. But the resurrection was on the first day of the week. And the greatest and the most glorious of all God's works of salvation were now accomplished in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second reason why the day of worship has been changed is because Jesus met with his disciples on the first day of the week. The disciples here in verse 19, they are gathered together for the first time since the crucifixion. The resurrection has taken place earlier in the day. And while they are gathered together in this upper room, Jesus came and met with them in their midst. John tells us in verse 19 that the doors were shut out of fear and then suddenly Jesus entered and appeared in their midst. Jesus came and stood in the midst of his disciples. Now how it was that he entered the room, we are not told. Some believe that Jesus opened the doors and then he walked through as any other man would. Others believe that the doors remain closed and in some supernatural, miraculous way, Jesus passed through the doors. However it took place, we are, may not be certain. It is not so important. But what is important is that Jesus came and met and stood in the midst of his disciples on that first day of the week. And John places special emphasis on this in the beginning of verse 19. It would have been enough for him to simply say in verse 19, when therefore it was evening, on that day when the doors were shut. But he specifies that it was on the first day of the week. It was on that day that Jesus came and met with them with his disciples. We see the same thing down in verse 26 where we read, and after eight days again, his disciples were inside, and Thomas with them, Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. That phrase at the beginning of verse 26, after eight days, is a Jewish customary way of speaking, of counting days in which they count the first day, as well, so when they would count a period of seven days, a seven-day week, they would count the first as well, and they would call it eight days. And so this expression here, after eight days, it really could be translated a week later. It was on one week. It was the following first day of the next week that Jesus once again now came and met and stood in the midst of his disciples. In verse 19, Jesus met with them on the first day of the week. 
But now what happens is, throughout the rest of the entire week, Jesus has withdrawn himself from them. He makes no appearances to his disciples. He refrains from meeting with them. And then, when they are gathered together on the first day of the next week, then it is that he comes and meets with them. And by his own example, Jesus is showing that it is the first day of the week in which he will come and stand and meet in the midst of his disciples. And so it is on that day that Christ comes and gathers with his people because that day is the day of Christian worship. Jesus said, there I am in the midst of them. And that's what he is fulfilling on this occasion. A third way in which we can see that the day of worship has been changed is by the command of the apostles and the practice of the early church. And if we were to go through the rest of our Bibles, we would find that what begins here on this occasion continues throughout the rest of the New Testament and it becomes the commands of the apostles and the practice of the early church in the book of Acts. We see this, for example, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost is the first day of the week and Christ has ascended back into heaven His disciples are all gathered together in one place. And on that day, Jesus came and met with his disciples by the Holy Spirit that was poured out from heaven. Pentecost takes place on the first day of the week. Christ meets with them. He said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come and be with you. We see later in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, Paul came to Troas. And we read there that on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, As I directed the churches in Galatia, as I directed those churches over there, so I direct you as well, he said, that on the first day, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. So Paul is giving a command to the churches. The first day of the week is to be the week in which they gather together. John calls it the Lord's Day in Revelation 1 and verse 10. The day that belongs to the Lord. And he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So the first day of the week, the first day of the week, is the only day of the week ever mentioned in the New Testament. And it becomes clear that Christ has changed the day of worship by his own glorious resurrection and the finished work of salvation. But then the third thing we want to see in our passage here this morning is that Jesus speaks peace to his disciples. He speaks peace to his disciples. We see this at the end of verse 19. The very first words, he came and stood in the midst of them. And the very first thing he said to them, 
is peace be with you. And then we see again in verse 21, therefore Jesus therefore said to them, peace be with you. And then when he met with them the following week, down in verse 26, the first day of that second week, at the end of verse 26, he said once again, peace be with you. One of the constant themes of the ministry of Jesus has always been peace to his disciples. The angels announced at his birth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 that Christ came and he preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. Peace has always been the great and central message of the gospel to men. And Jesus spoke of this in John chapter 14. We can look back there for just a moment to John chapter 14. And we read here of Jesus' words to the disciples in the upper room. And we read in verse 27, John 14 and verse 27. On the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. This is the legacy that Christ is to leave with his disciples. He is headed to the cross, and he will suffer for their sins, and then he will be raised, and he will ascend back into his glory in heaven. And what will he leave his disciples? He says, peace I leave with you. He says, it is my peace. It is the peace which I have, and now I give to you. It is the peace of Christ. It is a supernatural peace. It is a peace that can only come by the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. And it is a peace that can only be given to his disciples who believe in him. And it comes from him. Not as the world gives, he says. The world does not give you peace, as I do. The world gives you fear and trouble, but let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Over in chapter 16 of John's Gospel, down in verse 33, Jesus says the same thing. He says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. Take courage, I have overcome the world. So this is a peace that Christ gives, a supernatural, powerful peace that sustains us in the midst of the troubles and the tribulations and the fears that the world often brings. Back in chapter 20, back in chapter 20, when Jesus met with his disciples that first night, we see they were in fear of the Jews, shut up in that upper room. And Jesus stood in the midst of them. The very first thing he said to them is, Peace be with you. These disciples, they had failed Jesus back at the cross on the night of his crucifixion. They had abandoned him and left him. And he was taken away to the cross and a crucifixion 
for their sins. And no doubt they were wondering, what has happened now? And will he ever come to us and speak peace to us again? He spoke peace to us in that upper room, but then he was crucified. And now we do not know what has become of him. And will he speak any peace to us ever again? And the very first thing that Jesus speaks to them is peace. They had abandoned him. But all their sins were forgiven. And all their sins were now taken away by his death upon the cross. And there was only peace to be spoken to them. The very first thing he speaks is peace be with you. And then once again, peace be with you. So peace is the theme often of the gospel. We who were once at enmity with God, we now have peace with him through Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Often the message of the gospel, the apostles in the letters to the churches, what is the very first thing they often say in their letters? Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Then they close their letters and they say, Now the God of peace be with you all. John wrote to the seven churches in Asia Minor. In the book of Revelation, he said, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. So what is to support and uphold the hearts of Christians in the midst of the tribulations and the troubles of this world. It is the peace that comes from our Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what he is saying on this occasion. And then the last thing we can consider this morning is that Jesus commissions his apostles to preach the resurrection. This is what we see in verse 21, Jesus therefore said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So Jesus was sent into the world by God the Father to preach the truth to the world. Jesus is now to ascend back into heaven. And so he commissions his apostles here to carry on the task and to go into all the world and preach the truth of the gospel. And one of the central truths of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. His disciples are to be witnesses of his resurrection. And so Jesus gives them clear and undeniable proof of his resurrection in verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. He said, peace be with you. The Father has sent me. I also send you. And he is sending them now as the witnesses of his resurrection from the dead. Luke tells us a real physical resurrection. Luke tells us that when Jesus first stood in their midst, Luke tells us that they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And then Jesus said to them, why are you troubled and why do your doubts arise in your heart? He said, see my hands and my feet, 
that it is I myself and touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then Jesus, to prove that he was real flesh and blood, he asked them for something to eat. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he sat and he took it and ate it before them. So the body of Jesus raised from the dead is no ghost or phantom. He stood before them after his resurrection in a real physical body. The same body that he had lived his life in from the womb of Mary all of his perfect life on earth. The same body that he had suffered on the cross for their sins in the same hands and feet and now he is raised from the dead and they see his real physical body and the Bible tells us that the wounds of Christ are still visible in heaven because John says in the book of Revelation that they see him upon his throne and they recognize him that he is a lamb standing as if slain. And it seems that when he comes again in his great glory, that all men will see him still with his wounds. John tells us in Revelation chapter 1, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. This is how they will see him when he comes again as the one whom they have pierced. The wounds of the cross are the eternal witness that he has suffered as the Savior for the sins of men. And Jesus here is commissioning his disciples to go out and preach the gospel as the Father has sent me, so I also send you. And they are to witness of his resurrection. Something has happened here that they could never have imagined that Jesus has died upon the cross and that he is now raised from the dead. He was buried in the tomb. Now he is alive. And they see his resurrected body and it has the most powerful influence upon these disciples. And they become the witnesses of his resurrection in the book of Acts. We'll take a few minutes to look at a couple passages in the book of Acts. First, chapter 2. Chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost. And here we begin to see what is the significance and what is the importance and the meaning to us and to all men of the resurrection of Christ. What does it actually mean to us? We see that they are are witnesses of the resurrection. Chapter 2 The day of Pentecost, verses 23 and 24, Peter here is preaching. He says, this man, he was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Peter is speaking to those who put Jesus to death. 
They thought they had nailed him to a cross. They had taken him down, dead from the cross, buried him in the tomb. He was dead. He was buried. He was gone. They would never see him again. Peter tells them, no, he has been raised. You put him to death, but God raised him from the dead, put an end to the agony of death. It is impossible for him to be held by its power. God has raised him from the dead. And then he goes on in verses 25 and following, and he quotes from Psalm 16 and other passages in the Old Testament concerning the resurrection. And so Peter is telling them, this should be no surprise to you. This was predicted by the prophets of the Old Testament scripture. And then he says down in verse 32, he says, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. We saw him in that upper room when he first appeared to us with his hands and his feet. We witnessed his real physical resurrection. God raised him from the dead. We are all now his witnesses. And then we read of the significance of this down in verse 36. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. God has not just raised him from the dead, but God has exalted him back into heaven where he is now seated, Peter says, and he is Lord, he is the sovereign over all things. He is the Christ, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. This Jesus whom you crucified, he's been raised from the dead by God the Father. <clears throat> and what Peter is telling them is that by his resurrection, you can no longer ignore him and you can no longer pretend that he does not exist, that he is not alive. He has been raised, and he is at the right hand of God. And every man and woman on earth will have dealings with him eventually, in death or when he returns from heaven on the last day. That's what the resurrection means. We'll look over to chapter 3 for just a moment. Chapter 3, and Peter here preaches again, verses 14 and 15. He says, but you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer, Barabbas, to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life. You put to death the one who gives life, the prince of all life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Once again, Peter is preaching as the witness of the resurrection of Christ. Down in verse 19, he tells us what this means. He says to the Jewish people here, he says, repent therefore and return, turn away from your sins and return to God that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. There's there's the significance of the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ that they must repent and turn and come back to God to be forgiven of their sins we see in chapter 4, 
that the chapter opens and the Jewish authorities are angry. And we see what they're angry about in verses 1 and 2, chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed. Why were they so disturbed? Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They knew he wasn't in the tomb anymore. Despite all that they had done to guard that tomb. And now they're hearing through the apostles of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Then we read back in verse, down in verse 10. He says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. And then he says in verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been named, that has been given among men, by which we must be saved. So the resurrection proves Christ is the only Savior by which we can be saved. In Acts chapter 5, we just look at a couple more passages. Acts chapter 5 and verse 30. Paul says here, or rather Peter, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. And he is the one whom God has exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses of these things. Over in Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10, the Apostle Peter is in the house of Cornelius. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 39, Peter says, We are witnesses of all the things He did, Christ did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he should become visible. Then down in verse 42 and 43, he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So this is the gospel. The gospel is to be preached. How is the gospel to be preached? Solemnly, as a testimony that Christ has been appointed the judge of all men and in him only do men receive the forgiveness of their sins. One more verse in Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 30 and 31. And Paul now is in the city of Athens in Greece. And we read verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent The times of ignorance, the Old Testament time, when the gospel did not go to the Gentile nations, 
and salvation was almost entirely of the Jews. But now, in Athens, in the Gentile world, Paul is now preaching that those times of ignorance have come to an end, and now the gospel is going, and God is declaring to men all, everywhere, every man and every woman, this is the call of the gospel, that men should repent, turn from their sins, Why? Why should they turn from their sins? Verse 31, because he has fixed a day. He has fixed a day. It is settled. It is determined by God the Father in which he will judge the world, every man and every woman, the entire world, in righteousness according to his law, that through a man whom he has appointed, Christ having furnished proof, to all men by raising him from the dead. So the apostles are the witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. And it all began back in that upper room in John chapter 20, when he showed them his hands and his feet, his wounds from the cross. He was risen from the dead, and now the apostles go out and they preach the resurrection of Christ from the dead. It is the proof he is the only Savior of sinners. And he is exalted to the right hand of God. And he is the only one who can give forgiveness of sins. And so the message of the gospel is to go to the ends of the earth that all men everywhere would turn from their sin and come in faith to Jesus Christ and find in him the righteousness that they need to stand before him on the last day. Your good works will not save you. Your efforts at being good will not deliver you. There is only one who has righteousness. We have sin And he has righteousness. And the only way to have his righteousness is to come to him by faith and believe for the forgiveness of sin. So here is what the resurrection means. And the resurrection is the news, the central news of the gospel of Christ. We are all as Christians witnesses of the resurrection as well, because his resurrection power is at work in us to believe, and we know his power by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And so we, as the church, are to witness as well in this world that he is not dead, but he is risen, and he is exalted to the right hand of God. May God have mercy upon all of us And may we all come to believe in our Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray together. Father and gracious God in heaven, we do bless you and thank you for your beloved Son that we may always look to him for forgiveness of our sins for the cleansing of his blood. Lord, we confess that we are in very great need ourselves as your people to be daily washed in the blood of Jesus and to be renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Renew us, we pray, and transform us in the thinking of our minds. Give us grace to be faithful to you in all things. Keep us from our many sins. Help us to rejoice in the risen Christ, whom you have so freely given to us. Bless your word now to those who do not know you, and may their hearts be opened to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.